Welcome to Founders Uncut, the podcast that goes beyond the romanticized founder journey to discover the moments of vulnerability and doubt that even the most successful founders face. I'm Maria Palma, general partner at Kindred Capital. I'm here with Wemimo Abbey from Azusu. Azusu has raised over $140 million and the company is valued at a billion today as a unicorn company. Their partnerships with real estate owners and operators represent 2.5 million units across 50 different states, and they are helping people improve their credit score with the rent that they pay, and they are leveraging data to help bridge the racial wealth gap in the United States. But these are just the headlines. Let's get the real story on Founders Uncut. There was a moment in Wimimo's journey where he wasn't yet a unicorn founder and instead found himself sleeping at and getting kicked out of a Denny's restaurant. The journey of entrepreneurship is really, really hard. What we usually find is the celebratory part of it, raising capital or getting a contract and all the announcements, but it's never that rosy. If I go down memory lane, when my co-founder and I started Isusu, we didn't have much. We had left our jobs in corporate America, really banking on the fact that low to medium income people deserve quality financial products. So we quit our jobs. We're in $100,000 in credit card debts at that point with interest accruing. And was that credit card from running the business? Yes, it was as a result of investing everything we had in Isuzu. And we got our first clients. We delivered on what we were supposed to do. And we're stuck in the border of Fargo, not Dakota. And we wanted to get you know, to San Francisco the next day but we couldn't afford an hotel room. So we decided to hang out at Denny's, get a Grand Slam, and our plan was to walk all night and then catch our plane to San Francisco. Unfortunately, probably around 1 or 2 a.m., if memory serves me right, we started dozing off. And unfortunately, the the restaurant manager came up to us and said, gents, you have to leave because you can't sleep here. And he was just trying to do his job. So during our fundraising journey, uh, before raising all the money we've raised, we were kicked out of a Denny's, went to the airport and had to, you know, settle for the massage chairs at the airport. And we caught our flights to Silicon Valley to continue our fundraising journey. It's always important to share that story because everyone sees the billion dollar valuation. Everyone sees the $145 million raised. But no one talks about the fact that 326 investors said no to us. We were drowning in credit card debts. And even worse, we were kicked out of a Denny's. Yeah, I think these are the important stories to share. And I mean, 326 no's. That's a lot of no's. I think a lot of people get a lot of no's, but that's a lot. How did that feel? And how did you keep finding the courage to continue to go on because you knew you believed this could be a really big business and great opportunity when you're getting all the no's? You know, during that journey, raising capital is obviously hard and you're going to get a lot of no's. But we thought with my co-founder having spent time at an institution like LinkedIn and doing sales there, having spent my time at Goldman Sachs and PricewaterhouseCoopers doing mergers and acquisition. You know, we were not inexperienced folks. We knew we were going to figure it out and create a business that has an audacious vision and have a profound impact in the lives of many. And that thesis has remained true. But I think the challenge is, you know, if you look at it, folks that look like us um, are in the perfect archetype 
to essentially build formidable businesses. And that is reflected in the numbers. You know, less than 2% of capital comes to folks that look like me. You know, it's important for us to understand the issue of proximity. You know, we don't look like the status quo. And it was incredibly hard. Um, but we were just focused on perseverance. We understand the value of the products we were creating. We understand the profound impact it could have in the lives of many. And that's what gave us that mentality to just be caught trying every day. Wake up in the morning, do the work, get the no, knock down, get back up, and just keep doing the work. And that is what has paid dividends. And this idea of giving low to medium income people a fighting chance and helping them realize their full financial potential is what rewards us. And we stay humble, but looking forward to essentially help these folks win. I've had the, the luxury of spending a week with you on a trip once, and I, I know how hard you work from first thing in the morning until the end of the night. If you look back, it's really hard to know, but how much of the 326 no's or how much of the challenge of fundraising do you think was because you were a black founder or because it was an underserved market that people didn't understand? When you think back on it, you know, wh- is there some you can attribute to that or it's just hard to know? You know, the number speaks for itself. You know, as black black founders don't usually get funding. I think in 2019, a scooter company got more funding than the entire, the entire black founder ecosystem. You know, as a country, we need to look at ourselves in the eyes and face the realities that there are fundamental biases that happen. And it's just the issue of proximity and, you know, folks like us, we need more billion dollar companies and requires investors, right? You know, that white, whatever color you're associated with. So give folks like me a fighting chance so we can, you know, you know, essentially like eliminate this stereotype um, and which creates a strong chasm, you know, but what we fundamentally believed in were things we can control. I could wake up in the morning, I could walk hard, do the things I'm supposed to do, outperform, and create a promise on a business that's going to have a lot of impact and do well uh, for our shareholders and society at large. Those are things I can control, but at the same time, you also need capital to move the parties of the business forward. So it's quite unfortunate that happened. But look, I don't spend my time calculating for the what-ifs. I do the things I can control. Uh, and in my seat now, I do everything I can to give folks that look like me a fighting chance, either with advice, either connecting them to my network. You know, that's what I want to spend my time doing. And, and that's how we create a strong ecosystem on a go-forward basis. Yeah, one of the things you said once, um, which always stuck with me, is that I think a lot of people think about like founder office hours, and there's a lot of different things that people try. But you had mentioned once that the social connection is also really important because if you, you know, if someone goes to a certain school and then they talk to another founder who went to that school, there's like a natural connection. And if you're often from different communities, you don't necessarily have the same affiliations, the same language. Do you have any advice to black founders or any founder that maybe doesn't look like the founders who get most of the money as they go out to fundraise? Is there anything that you've learned? Because now, you know, your last round was 130 from SoftBank. Is there anything you've learned along the way that you would give as advice to people trying to fundraise that? are in the underrepresented group and the stats unfortunately don't look great when you're starting that process. Yeah, you know, there are lots of advice. I think number one, there are three major highlights. Number one, just make connections when you don't necessarily need people's help. You know, that's something I learned. I get to know people. I get to know them personally, not because I'm raising money. I just want to understand who they are. When you spend your time understanding what folks are, you understand that friendship Right, it's the antidote to all the challenges you're going to have in life. 
And, you know, that's something that stuck with me and that's how I like to live my life and couple onto my life. Um, number two is just prepared. You know, being prepared is very important. I've made the mistakes in the past whereby we were raising capital at a position of deficit. So it's important to raise money at a position of strength. Raise money when you don't need it. That goes a long way, especially on this journey, because if you are raising money when you're running out of money, then the other side has leverage and could not bode well for you, which I've been on both sides of the spectrum. And the third thing is just, you know, reach out to people that you know in the network. If you know someone that knows 10 investors, it's better for you to reach out to them to extend that intro, right? And you trying to, you know, reach out to those investors yourself. You know, those are things that have worked for me. Um, and in addition to that, for founders that reach out to me for help, um, all the, everything I have learned, uh, my co-founder also from the raising capital, we actually hired someone to document, you know, all the lessons learned. And when founders reach out to us, we give them that resource uh, for free so they understand this is the journey, this is the timeline, this is what you should have in place. Because it's not only advice, it's not only rhetoric. You just got to show people the way in terms of how it gets done. And that's what we're interested in. Yeah. And let's talk about the company building for a second, because to your point, you need capital to build a company, but you really have to build the company. You have had 600% year over year growth. That is a lot of growth. Um, tell us what that actually feels like in the day-to-day -day hiring people, the culture, scaling up processes and systems. You know, what is incredibly challenging about that and what is incredibly rewarding about that? Yeah, you know, we've been fortunate of having explosive growth, but that does not relegate the challenges associated with it. I think what has helped us be successful is trying as much as possible and we're work in progress or by no means perfect is to build a mansion on a solid foundation. And what that means in startup world is what is your North Star? You know, what's your vision? What's the mission? What you're doing right now? Right? And what are the values that essentially govern the people you bring on board? Because that's how you attract, retain, or fire folks, right? You need to make sure you have strong values and then operating principles of how you get things done from a tactical perspective. And at ASUSU, we took it a step further and said, what are some of the things that we'll never do, right? So that document, which is we call our credo, our constitution, guides everything we do. You know, how we promote people, how we elevate them, how we attract talent. And that's the core foundation in the first place. And when you have that in place, your visions and values, the next natural step is what value are you driving for your customers? And for us, we like to call ourselves justice capitalist, which is this idea that doing good and doing well isn't mutually exclusive. So we have two, a dual goal um, to essentially accomplish. And that's the value to your customers and a value to society at large and a value to the business, which is a win-win-win construct. And following that, you, know, you have to be meticulous about building a strong leadership team um, to give leverage and delegate certain activities and folks you can trust to be there when you're not in the picture. So for us, that's what it has taken. Um, and betting on a population that folks are fundamentally left behind because they just didn't know about how to engage them. And having this mindset of giving people social agency and trusting them as what has separated us in the marketplace and being the catalyst of that growth. Chiefed among them all is our people. You know, I have the good fortune of working alongside the smartest people um, at Isusu, but they have a head for business, but a heart for the world. 
Mm-hmm. I love that. Head for business, heart for the world. You've got a lot of great sayings. I'm going to start writing all of these things down. But I think in terms of the things you wouldn't do, can we talk about that for a second? What is something that's in your credo that you wouldn't do? You know, chief amongst them all of the things we won't do in our credo is sell our data to malevolent players um, or be a predatory lender. And predatory lender, in our view, is like folks that lend money at 400% interest rates. That's just, you know, annualized. That just doesn't make sense. That's draconian. And we're not going to sell our data to people that essentially perpetuate such behaviors. So this is some of the things that we're not doing. And the last thing is, you know, and that credo is not treating our people as a disposable commodity. You know, in whatever you're building, the most important assets you have are people. And we try every day to treat our people the best we can. Once again, we're not perfect. The journey of creating a company, of creating a story, of creating you know, something that's going to drive change requires a lot of debate of what it should be. And that's what we welcome at ASUSU. So it's this commitment to be perpetually more perfect is what's giving us, you know, the kind of leverage we have in society, the stories we can tell and the impacts we can have. So those are some of the things, not treating our people as a replaceable commodity. Number two, not selling our data to mobile end players and obviously not lending at um, absurd um, interest rates is, is particularly important for us. I think it's really important to say what your culture is not. A lot of people define their culture and their values and, and how those translate into behaviors and how you think about the types of environments you create. But I actually think it's really important to do that is not. A lot of times I, I, I talk to startups to do this exercise around like what we are and I've also encouraged them to do the same thing that is not. And sometimes it is not actually tells you as much about the culture as, as what it is. On the founder journey, what surprised you about founder life that you didn't think going in? This is my third time being a founder, actually. The first company I started was water business, building affordable water infrastructure. The second one I did was mapping international $8 on the African continent, which was acquired. and went on to corporate America. But Susu is obviously the biggest company I have ever had the privilege um, to run. And, you know, some of the key lessons learned running a company like this at scale um, is really making sure you have the best people in the right seat. That's very, very important, especially as you build a company that you want to last the test of time. You know, the founders cannot do everything, but you need to have, find people that mission, vision, and values are aligned to get to the promised land. Number two is you have to create something that adds value. And ideally, that adds value for your shareholders, that adds value for your clients and society at large. You know, go back to the premise of justice capitalism. Our current capitalism right now is like a mansion and built on a sinking sand. The, the divide between the rich and the poor is just incredibly large. And we, we are looking at solutions to continue to narrow that gap. So for us, you know, it's all about creating value and doing good and doing well and proving to the world that those things are not mutually exclusive. And the third thing that's just very, very tactical is, you know, diversity. And we are really grounded on these three points of diversity as it relates to people, purchasing and philanthropy. You know, on the people front, we're proud that it's that 90% of the folks on our leadership team are people of color or first-time immigrants. You know, and of that, we have over 50% of the leadership team being women. Um, and, you know, our premise is diversity outperforms. Our board members are also the same, right? You know, we have over 50% there. 
um, that are diverse folks. You know, on the purchasing side, over 40% of our vendors are essentially diverse, and we continue to chip away at it and work at that. And on the philanthropy side, we dedicate a portion of our own equity to make sure we invest in homeless activities, you know, zero interest loans so people can have a roof over their head. And as a society, we're not solving homelessness backwards. So it is one thing to talk about the lack of capital going to folks that look like me, but we're in the position to make decisions. We need to go out there to the world and talk about the facts that diversity outperforms. It's not a pipeline issue. We are proving it. We are outperforming as a business. And that's the example we want to set. Uh, and our cap table, close to 75% of the folks that manage the funds are, are diverse people of color, women. And we're incredibly proud of that. It's building a new generation of businesses to show the world as an example that other people can follow. And my goal is to make that catalytic. Now it gives you know someone from Silicon Valley or someone in Utah or someone in Houston that will otherwise not invest in businesses that look like us. Now they can take the bets because of what we're doing. And that's what we fundamentally stand for. Yeah. And a lot of people say it's a pipeline issue, especially on the hiring side. Do you have any tips and best practices for building that senior leadership team that is diverse? Because I agree with you. If you actually look at the stats, diversity outperforms. But then if you actually look at what people hire, it's not usually that. And so do you have any advice on finding those people or setting up the culture in a way that attracts the right talent? Yeah. At ISUSU, our vision is to leverage data to breach the racial wealth gap, not the wealth gap. So we're really unapologetic about what we stand for. And that attracts people that are passionate about the challenge we have in society. So I think what we stand for attracts the kind of people that want to, you know, leave the coffers of large corporate institutions, work on something bigger than themselves. You know, my advice, you know, if you're looking to essentially attract diverse leadership team members, is there are a lot of them out there. You know, it's not a pipeline issue. You just have to surround yourself and be unapologetic about what you're trying to accomplish. You know, have targets, have someone that measures it. Make sure that the members of your team, from your value standpoint, you attract, you retain, you promote, and you fire people based on the kind of composition of the folks they are. Because you have to say it as a leader also that you fundamentally believe that diversity outperforms. And it's not saying it once. Saying that almost all of your all ends call. So everyone in the company understands. So when your head of talent acquisition is looking for people, they understand where you stand and it's not just lip service. And that's what we see a lot. A lot of it is lip service and it's blamed on pipeline issue. But the exceptional professionals out there looking to have a profound impact. But you have to attract them. You have to nurture the relationships. And then you have to tell everyone internally they're also responsible for hiring how important this is to you, and then measure it and report it out. We, we measure and report it out. Once you start doing that, you measure your returns, you measure your earnings, you measure your sales, measure it. And when you start measuring and having action plan, you know, that's when it matters to you. But if you're not measuring it, it's sleep service. Yeah. How many people are you right now? You're over 200, right? Yeah. We're close to 200 people. Yeah. And arguably, you could make the case that even though startups have to hire really quickly, they should be able to be a better example of diversity than existing institutions. A, because you're hiring from scratch, right? So you don't have any legacy problem. And then B, you're hiring a matter of a few hundred people, right? You're not, if you have 500,000 people and you need to fill those seats, it should be harder for you to, to take the time to do that. So ironically, startups should be one of the places where you can actually prove that new models work. You've talked a number of times about 
doing good and making money don't have to be at odds with each other, which I agree with, but I think there's a lot of people who think that. You founded many things, as you said before, one of which was a nonprofit, a 501c3, and one of which is a private company that you're running now. How And you, you mentioned the philanthropy part of what Asusu is doing. How do you think about what should be a nonprofit and what should be solved as a private organization? And how do you think about the difference of those two things? I've been on both sides of the aisle, and I think it's not about the structure, right? It's about what you're trying to accomplish and innovations that you tag as a result of that in terms of what you're trying to accomplish. So it's not so binary of what the legal entity formation should be or could be. It's about what you're trying to accomplish. If what you're trying to accomplish drives value, capital intensive, and you need to grow fast to show it, then get venture capital. Right? For something you're trying to do is fundamentally systemic, it's going to take you a long time and you need to bring people together and you need tax deductible dollars, then you know, get a nonprofit. And you can do both also. There are a lot of companies that do both. Uh, we clearly do both because we want to show that there's, there's certain things like growth capital cannot accomplish. Um, and you know, for us, we fundamentally think about the change we're looking to have in the lives of people. You, know, you think about it, you have 45 million people in this country, in America, that have no credit scores or have a thin profile. And then you have 100 close to 140 million people that rent in America and they send $1.44 trillion to their landlords every year. You know, what we care about is how do we get people without credit scores, good credit scores, and folks that are renting, hopefully one day, to become homeowners if they, sh- if they sh- choose to do that. And for us, it's really simple. It's all about betting on those folks uh, and making sure they get the right product to get them to the promised land. But that requires technology investment. So for us, it made sense to go venture capital to reimagine this space and this large untapped market of not of $4.1 trillion, which we're trying to reimagine. So to answer that question in a nutshell, it's not about having a non-profit or a for-profit. The first question is, what are you trying to achieve? And once yeah. you figure that out, then you can decide the structure that makes the most sense for you. Makes sense. And how has your role as a founder changed throughout the different stages of the business? Yeah. You know, in the pre-seed stage, used to be jack of all trades, answer the phone, customer support, sales, accounting, finance, you know, regulatory space. They're all nine yards. And when you go through your seed phase, you're looking for like other folks to come on board to give you leverage. You go through series A, it's all about scale. It needs to go beyond the founders to essentially build something that's going to outlast you. So now my role as we're a Series B growth stage company is about making sure we have the right people in the right seats that align with our mission, vision, and values. And in addition to that, making sure we have processes in place that can scale, that if we founders get hit by a bus, the company leaves on. So it's all about longevity at this point, scalability, and then having to repeat businesses to make sure that we can achieve what we are going to achieve. Um, and then the third piece is just, you know, continue to push the boundaries and think about different phases. You know, you achieve what you said you're going to achieve, but there are other milestones that you need to look at. Uh, so the job really evolves and depending on strong partners and a strong leadership team to help move the frontiers of the vision forward. That's great. It makes sense. It definitely changes as you have more and more people. And as you think about 
the job of being a founder? Do you think it's one of the best jobs or one of the worst jobs? Hmm. Being a founder, and if you're utterly passionate about what you do, can be schizophrenic, right? Because you're going, it's an up and down situation, but I have the good fortune of waking up every day at a susu and our focus is simple. How do we keep a roof over people's heads and how do we bridge the racial wealth gap? Sometimes I'm really tired. I've been in five, six cities in the past eight days. Sometimes I don't have time for myself because I'm just firefighting. And sometimes, you know, I get really excited when I see we establish someone's credit score and that person goes on to buy a house. It's a tough journey. It's incredibly hard, especially if you're trying to solve the calculus of doing good and doing well, but there's no job I'd rather do. What we are trying to fundamentally do is give people a fighting chance and stop treating people like they're guilty until proven innocent. And waking up to fight that fight every day, albeit exhausting, is something I think it's absolutely rewarding. And on my deathbed, I want my legacy to be simple. Someone that fought very, very hard to give others a fighting chance and crack the door open for folks coming behind him. And then someone that did everything he possibly can to leverage data or any means possible to bridge the racial wealth gap. Yeah. Well, I think you're already pretty far along in creating that legacy. So that's incredible. How do you think about the personal side of things? You know, I, I know you happen to have a beautiful wife and you enjoy going to the gym. If you ever get any time, you know, what? Do you have any time for yourself or how do you create some space when you're running a company to also have friends and family and other things? It's hard. Um, and some things will fall apart, but you have to prioritize. What I care about, number one, is my family, my wife, my partner, right? That's number one. But so many balls you can juggle. And, you know, my wife comes first. My family comes, you know, the day after. And then, you know, you juggle the balls of the business because those are your core. At the end of the day, you need to build something that it's not tied to your identity. And you have to ask yourself, who am I beyond, beyond the business that I'm building? Because if something goes wrong or something goes well, you don't want your emotion to just be tied to that reality alone. Um, but the truth to founders is this journey is hard and your friends will not appreciate the time you do not spend with them anymore. You're not going to do everything well, but it's a sacrifice that you need to be willing to take to impact the world, make this world a better place. And all you can do is to be caught trying. You're not going to be perfect. Yeah. No, I think, what is it? The Roosevelt quote about being in the arena and being the one trying. I think that's very well said. And to your point, you I guess you just got to give yourself some wiggle room that nothing's going to be perfect and you're going to give up something somewhere. Absolutely. The point you made about identity, though, is interesting but hard because you don't want your identity to be, to be just tied to this, right? You don't want you to just be a Zuzu, but at the same time, you're probably spending 95 or you know whatever, a lot of your time on this. And so it's probably hard to disassociate the identity of the company and you. Yeah, I, I agree with you, but there's more to me than the co-founder and co-CEO of Isusu. You know, I am a big soccer, big football lover. I love art and the impact it can have in society. I'm extremely passionate about education. I want to try as much as possible to do everything we can, right, 
to give people a fighting chance, which in some cases relates to what I do at Isusu. Um, but there's more to me. Um, the things I love and I appreciate, I love music. There's more to me than just what I do at Isusu. I'm utterly passionate about it, but it's not by no means tied to my identity. Yeah, you're a multifaceted person, and this is one facet that happens to be large, but who's your soccer team? Well, I'm an Arsenal fan, um, North London team, been an Arsenal fan for over 18 years. I forgot that because probably when I first knew you were an Arsenal fan, I didn't know all the teams in London, but you will be glad to know that I also chose Arsenal. We chose Arsenal as well. We have little Arsenal onesies for our kids, so um, go Arsenal. You chose right. Arsenal is a great team in North London. I can't wait to be back at the Emirates whenever I can. Okay, well, we'll go see a game together at some point. Um, technically, the way you're supposed to choose is the closest one to you, and that was true when we first moved to London. That was the closest team to us, but also one of my partners at the fund, also his grandfather used to, to play for Arsenal, so lots of fun ties to Arsenal. Well, I think we're running out of time, so I want to keep it short, but any advice that you'd have to anyone who wants to give people a fighting chance, maybe not even necessarily as a founder, but through other ways, any kind of words of wisdom you'd leave everyone with? Three major things. Number one, whatever is worth doing is worth doing with people that share your vision and values and not alone. And it goes back to what ISUSU stands for. If you want to go fast, you go alone. But if you want to go far, you go together. Number two is you will fail. People will tell you no alongside this journey, trying to build something special and reimagine the impossible. If it, is, if it was easy, everyone else would figure it out. So when you're knocked down, get back up and try again. And the last thing is the life we're living at this juncture is very, very fluid. Make sure when you're building a company, understand your North Star. At Isuzu, for us, it is leveraging data to bridge the racial wealth gap. And the advice to everyone is not necessarily advice, it's a question. What do you stand for and what impacts do you want to see in this life? And once you figure that out, everything falls in place. That's a beautiful way to end. Thank you for being with us. Got it. Thank you so much, Maria. If you want to learn more about what Womimo is doing, or you want to join a great startup with an incredible cause, go to isususavings.org. If you want more stories like this, go to kindredcapital.vc forward slash founders uncut. As always, if you're a founder and the journey is hard, you're not alone and it doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong. Being a founder is just hard. Even the most successful founders face fear, doubt, and unbelievable difficulties that never make the headlines. Thanks for joining us today. And if this story resonated with you, join us for more stories like this on Founders Uncut. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the aging process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel-Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.